Welcome to Grow Your Influence Tree with your host, Leonard Kim. This is the show especially for those that want to be among the top influencers of the world. We'll help you build your brand, tell the most compelling story, build your reputation and grow your audience, and attract the top clients and customers. Listen to the experts. Think like they do, and you'll be on your way. Now, here's Leonard Kim. Hey, everyone. Leonard Kim here with another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Today, we're with Press Maxson, who's a best-selling um, Amazon best-selling author. He's a senior copywriter over at Salesforce. And he's on the line with us today, and we're going to be talking about many things that deal with the influence. Um, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself, Press? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much, Leonard, for having me on your show. Um, no but, uh, yeah, basically, I uh, have made a career out of being a creative uh, in, you know, a couple different facets. Um, but the red thread through all my career stops have been uh, creative writing. And uh, I graduated from the University of Iowa with, with a degree in English um, around the turn of the century and have spent some time in Los Angeles uh, working in television and music and then moved to Indianapolis about 10 years ago where uh, I started writing a lot more, a lot less for entertainment, you know, venues and a little bit more for content for businesses, uh, advertising, articles, um, web copy, and uh, have lately in the last about seven years been writing novels on my own uh, where I've, you know, experienced a little bit of success and I'm really proud of that. And uh, I'm sort of a, I, I hope for people, I'm sort of a case study in building a professional life out of being creative. Nice. That's kind of awesome. I mean, not many people end up going to school and getting an English degree and are able to actually use it in their careers. But it seems that you, you've been able to do that. And I find a lot of fortunate. I find it to be quite fortunate that you were able to do that because so many people well, kind of really have difficulty with that. Well, I think the nice thing about, you know, having a degree in English is that you can do almost anything and use something you've learned. I mean, language is a powerful tool. Writing is a powerful tool that no matter what you do, a lot of times you have to write something, you know, uh, whether it's on behalf of you or your company or a group of people or to prospects or customers or something. So I feel like uh, it's, you know, I feel like actually having an English major is one of the more applicable things you can do Granted, I think to your point, not very many people uh, go off and just become a writer, um, which was sort of my ultimate goal. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it's served me well, certainly. And the other people I graduated with, like I, I don't, I think ninety nine percent of them did not go off to be writers, <laughs> but they went off to be successful professionals and other things. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's not that it doesn't lead to a successful profession. It's just that not many people use it for writing. And it's quite interesting that you kind of were able to go down that career path. And it's pretty awesome. Thanks, man. No problem. So you kind of started your career in entertainment. I know a lot of people, when they're fresh out of college, what they kind of want to do is let their creativity go out there. And a lot of people kind of shoot for the stars and lean towards Hollywood. Like, how did you kind of break into that? Uh, well, I, I don't think I broke in any differently than anybody else that did. And, and I think it's important to note that when you shoot for the stars, in Hollywood, you're almost, I mean, becoming a millionaire, doing that and becoming a millionaire, like, and becoming famous is almost like winning the lottery. I think a lot of people forget that success in the entertainment industry, and particularly in Los Angeles, success has so many varying tiers of, of you know, a career. Like, you do not have to be famous or a millionaire to make a comfortable, happy, lifelong living working in the entertainment industry. And, uh, and if your only goal is to become famous and rich, then I guess it is difficult. But if, if your goal is to make a living and think creatively and do something you love, there are so many 
outlet, I, I feel like, to do that. And so I kind of discovered that. Like I started, um, when you use the phrase break in, mm-hmm. I, uh, I started off just with the attitude that I would do anything. I would do almost any job in the entertainment industry that I could get. And the first couple jobs I got were for free. I mean, they were, I was older than your typical intern, but I got an internship mm-hmm. at, I think, age like 26. And it only lasted a month, but it was at a, at a production company that did very high-end event planning. And yeah. so after I did the first event for them for free, and I was really just being a gopher and, you know, being an errand person and sort of moving boxes and an extra set of hands for them, um, after that, they hired me. And it wasn't full-time employment, but it was event to event. And because of the experience I gained there, I got offered a one day, just they needed help, a production assistant help on a television show, a reality television show about, you know, 13 years ago. And, uh, and I said, yes. And I, that one day on that show turned into months and months of work. And so before I knew it, it was like, it was almost like, it felt like an accident. You know, like I had just signed up for one day here and one event here. And next thing I knew, I was, I had a job, you know? Um, so I guess that's how I kind of quote unquote broke in, but it wasn't glamorous by any means. Yeah, it does take a lot of hard work, a lot of effort to really go out there and do things. And I, I think a lot of people kind of discount that. Like they think it just, just happens overnight, especially with the kind of world that we're in now where you look on Instagram and you see people on vacation all the time. You're like, what about me? Is it really that easy? Can I really pretty how to do that? And the reality is I don't even know when the last time I went on vacation is. <laughs> You know what's funny, man? I don't, um, I don't feel like I even, I don't feel like even a vacation crossed my mind until I was like in my thirties. And it's not that I was a workaholic by any means. My brain had just been trained to think like I have to work to pay my bills and I wasn't able to like save enough for a nice vacation anyway. <laughs> like, so I it literally, it wasn't depressing. It just was something I wasn't thinking of, you know? And the first time, I mean, I guess the first real vacation I went on was like my honeymoon. And I remember after we got married, my wife was like, oh, let's plan our next vacation. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess we can. <laughs> you know, it, even, it wasn't even in my, it wasn't even in my brain. And now, I mean, I'm almost 40, but now I like... Now I dream about vacations. I still don't take them that often, but. <laughs> yeah, I think about maybe five or six years ago, like I didn't really take vacations either. And one day I was like, I, I need to take a trip. I need to leave. So I asked the coworker, where should I go? And they're like, Cabo. I'm like, okay, that sounds expensive. Can I really afford it? Um, put everything right. together. And I'm like, wow. I don't know. And I think I only ended up spending like eight to $900 on that trip. I'm like, oh, my God, it was so much fun. But it cost so much money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> then now it's like, uh, like I'm married now. My wife's like, we haven't taken a vacation. I'm like, we just went here. You're buying this stuff every week. Like, I don't know how to do that. So like, like, I don't understand. Well, for us, okay. we have... We have kids now, so the kids are sort of a forcing function to take vacations because we want them to have, you know, those classic family vacation memories, you know, and so we want to be able to provide that. So they they keep us thinking ahead like, okay, well, we should go to the beach. We should go visit relatives. We should go see something so that they can, you know, they can have that. That's our forcing function now. Nice. Yeah, me and my wife, we just moved in like maybe three or four months ago. And then, like, you know, when you first move in, you have to get all the furniture and everything. I'm like, um, I think we need to, like, you know, not go out for like two or three months so we could pay off all this furniture and stuff. <laughs> and every single week, it's like, I want to go shopping. I want to go shopping. I want to go shopping. I'm like, okay. That's and funny. if I told That's you how funny. much money she spent every week. <laughs> let's just yeah, say that we could have gone funny. to Cabo a lot of times <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, yeah, okay <laughs> this is great 
So um, you kind of like another thing you did is um, you moved from where you were going to college and then you kind of moved to Los Angeles. Like a lot of people, like me personally, like I've thought about moving, but then pulling the trigger on something like that, I I mean, it scares the living daylights out of me. And like, (sighs) it's like... I'm, I'm, I'm like kind of grounded where I am. It's like hard to figure out how to get up and move. Like even if someone offered me like three times more than I was earning now, I'd still have a lot of fear and hesitation with moving. Like for, for you, you, you made that jump twice um, from where you are currently to uh, when you moved to Los Angeles to where you were before. Like how did you kind of find that courage to do that? It was two different sets of courage for sure. I I mean, at the time it did not feel courageous. I mean, I will admit that I, although I went alone in the traditional sense, it's not like I didn't have a support system already in place on the other end. When I left Iowa, I had, I'd wanted to move to Los Angeles for a couple of years. My best friend from high school had already moved out there. And, um, he and I, I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't like we'd stayed in such close touch that he was going to be waiting out there and ready with a couch for me to crash on. But the fact that he had done it and had had success and that he was having a good time was like, well, okay, he, he's done it. I've, I've watched him do it. Like, and he'll be there. Like I already have one friend, you know, that kind of thing. And I was at the time I was in a rock band in Iowa and we, we weren't very good, but we had a lot of fun. And I had told them, that I wanted to do it. So one of the other guys from that band actually left a couple months before me. So it was the kind of thing where I thought, well, shoot, you know, he's beaten me out there. Like I almost couldn't get out there fast enough. You know, it wasn't, Mm. I remember I worked, I was a bartender and I tried to save a ton of money and I started, I quit the bartending job and started working construction, which was like terrible hours, but it was great money. And, uh, finally by the end of you know the summer i i just i just did it and that was i had been talking about it for a while but i had this calendar on the wall in my kitchen and i think it was sometime in february i just i looked ahead and i circled august 1st and i had no reason to believe i'd feel ready or anything all i knew is i wanted to be headed that way and i just thought okay august 1st is the day i'm going whether i feel ready or not and um so that was the the feelings around the first trip. And of course, when I made the trip from Iowa to Los Angeles, I felt, I mean, I truly felt like I had arrived. Like I felt like I was fulfilling my, my destiny at the moment. Like I thought, okay, 24 year old press max. And this is where he's supposed to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was pretty easy. And then, when I moved from Los Angeles to Indianapolis, where I live now, I knew even fewer people in Indianapolis. I had never actually even been to Indianapolis, um, but I had been dating a girl who lived here, and I just thought, you know, there's only there's two things. There's only two ways this can go. We'll either, you know, continually falling, you know, madly in love and get married. I was like, or we'll break up and I'll just move back to LA and go back to the life I love. And the end of both of those roads, I was like, end in like complete bliss because I loved my life in LA, uh, but I also loved her. And um, so it worked out that she, um, you know, that it, it worked out with her. I mean, she's my wife now and we have a family, but uh, uh, that moved to Indianapolis was a little bit scarier than the move to LA because I didn't really have a career when I moved to LA. I was moving to LA to boost the career. I had a career in LA that wasn't really applicable in Indianapolis. And I had to, the, although I was moving for a personal reason, a good reason, I still had to, I was going to have to revamp and reboot my career because of it. And that was hard. Yeah, that that's, does sound pretty tough. And we'll get into a little bit more about how tough that exactly was after this commercial break. If people want to find you online, Prez, where could they find you? Yeah, so you can visit uh, amazon.com slash author slash pressmaxon. That's where um, you can find the two books I've written. They are uh, fiction, 
They are purely for fun. They're humor mystery books, and they're sort of my true passion. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at PressMaxson. That's P-R-E-S-M-A-X-S-O-N. Perfect. And you can find me at Mr. Larry Kimmel on Twitter, and we'll be back after this commercial break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. It's time to unlock some of the best kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Want to improve your health, business, and life just by listening to a radio show? Well, we can at least move you in the right direction. Listen for Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. Each week, Allison will speak with amazing guests and find out what's changed their lives and how they are changing the lives of others. From beauty to health to business and personal relationships, we're here to inspire you to live your life of passion. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers channel now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take voice america on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market hear the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the second segment of Grow Your Influence Tree. We're here with Prez Maxson. And if you've listened to the story thus far, we learned how Prez was able to go and move out to Los Angeles and move into the uh, entertainment industry and then move back to Indianapolis, where um, he met the lo- or where he uh, ended up living with the love of his life. And these two moves, like they're bold and courageous moves that he kind of made. One is he's traveling from Iowa all the way to Los Angeles, but he had a friend who moved here first, so he felt the need and the desire to go out there and be with his friend and see what could happen. He just set a date in his calendar and he just did it. And guess what? Things just turned out for the better just because of that one step and then taking that next step and the next step and the next step. So he took these small, tiny wins, put them together, and eventually he had a whole career in the entertainment industry. Then, you know, a lot of people, when they look at things, they're like, what am I giving up? And for me, when I look at, like, different things like income, friends, things like that, and I look at things like, oh, my God, am I going to have to give these things up? I kind of had a sense of fear within me, and I think it's a common thread among most people to kind of have that fear. But he had a choice where he could either go out there and potentially live with the love of his life or um, have that fail and move back to Los Angeles doing the things that he loved doing. But guess what? Both of those kind of ended up in a great situation. My wife kind of made that same journey where she decided to move out from New York all the way to Los Angeles. And she decided to take that leap of faith to see if this would potentially happen. And Prez, he, he has kids now. Everything's going well. And hopefully I had that same thing happen to me. But now, um, one of the things that you moved to, Indi- one of the things that happened after you moved to Indianapolis is you were kind of like with the skill set and these careers that didn't really reply to apply to uh, the circumstances you were in. So how did you kind of transition and move from there? Well, I'd love to say it was a smooth transition, <laughs> but here are the uh, sort of highlights. I mean, I had, I left Los Angeles. I had been uh, a piano player, like a studio piano player. I'd played in a band and I'd made like enough money 
playing piano, being, you know, to kind of be comfortable, um, as well as that was like at night while I was playing, uh, while I was working in television during the day, I was a casting producer when I left. Uh, but I got to Indianapolis, and first of all, like in television, there was only really local news here. At the time, there mm-hmm. wasn't that much else in terms of television production, and there, were, there are one or two agencies around town that did like film work, but um, this, like the, the marketing landscape, the ad agency landscape, even 10 years ago, is not, was not what it is now in indie. So there were few opportunities there. And then being a live musician here meant something completely different. It was like, you know, lots of weddings. I started playing like at a dueling piano bar and I had just moved here to be with a girl, but that meant playing at a dueling piano bar. I was out of the house every night from like 7.30 until 3 a.m. And it just, the quality of life was not high. And uh, I had taken a day job that was completely outside my field, but the, like, the money was okay. And the economy in Indianapolis was such that I was saving more money than I ever had in Los Angeles, but I was having way less fun. And so I decided I really needed a couple of changes. And if we talk about kind of finding a way to keep your audience, but evolve your product, essentially keep your like influence tree. Like I realized, um, that first of all, I was going to need a few more skills that I didn't have just business wise. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, the creative side of my brain operated like was high functional, but the practical business side of my brain, I never had to be responsible for that side of the business of creativity. So I went back to school, I got my MBA and kind of figured out a little bit more about business. And then, um, I started writing for myself and I picked up clients. Uh, I would do anything, ads, I would do articles, I would do uh, like, I'd write podcasts, short films, I'd ghostwrite short stories, like that kind of stuff. And all while I was doing that kind of for money, I realized being a live musician was not that sustainable, particularly once we started having kids because I couldn't. Um, practice, like make noise at all hours in the house. In fact, uh, almost any hour when the kid's an infant because your life revolves around the kid. So I thought, really, how can I take the audience that I have built playing music and continue to live, you know, continue to create a creative product that, that evolves as I grow up, you know? And so that's when I started writing fiction. And I think I partly got lucky. I'll be honest that I very... I worked very hard as well, and I made some calculated decisions about who my audience was and how I was going to reach them once I had, you know, my first book finished. And here we are. It's um, almost four years since I released the first book, and I've been very lucky. I have almost 4,000 copies sold, and that's just on my own without the help of, like, a major publisher or anything. And I got... um, I've gotten an honorable mention at both the New York Book Festival and the Paris Book Festival. I'm so excited about that. In the past three years in a row, I've been nominated by a local arts magazine as a best local author, and I still love playing music, and I do almost every day, especially with our kids with piano in the house and a guitar in the house, and I love doing it. But uh, the pressures of having to be out late and <laughs> come back smelling like smoke and all that kind of stuff are gone. Yeah, that that kind of makes sense, especially when you have kids where uh, the music, like, it could cause a disruption to the household, and you kind of have to find different options to really go out there and pursue, and it seems like you were quite fortunate in what options you picked out, and it seemed to have worked out pretty well. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned is right after you stopped playing, on, you, you were doing these other things. Like um, you started writing for yourself. Was that like in a journal? Was that like in a blog? Was that online? Or how, how did that kind of? No, yeah. What I yeah, what I meant by that was I I basically um, I graduated from school and I just thought I'm going to open my own small ad agency, mm-hmm. and my whole idea was I'll spend a year doing it. And when I say write for myself, it's really not me writing for myself. I'm writing for companies, but I had no boss. It was just me. I was going to small businesses, and I basically, my pitch was, 
I'm a one-man ad agency. I cost less than every ad agency in town, but I don't have the resources of any other ad, ad agency in town. So I can't do a high production film series. I could do a small like web video series. I can write your website, but if you want me to write the entire thing and manage the testing and you know following all the an- analytics, it's going to take me a lot longer than you know a big a big place. And I got enough small businesses to uh, hire me for small projects that were manageable for me that I pretty quickly without earning almost any other job I'd had so far in Indianapolis, which was nice. Um, but at the same time, the whole time I was like, well, after one year of doing this, if I had built up a big enough clientele, I'll just, you know, fully incorporate it, rent a little office somewhere and I'll have it. Or I'll in that somewhere within that year, I'll get a job at an agency somewhere where I can have the benefits of actually being on the team and, you know, have the benefits of not assuming all the risk of the business. And uh, so that's what happened. I actually found a job at Salesforce where I work now at at our in-house agency. And I feel very fortunate to have that opportunity. Awesome. I mean, Salesforce is a really big company and you guys have offices all around the world. And um, uh, to go from that one-man agency to kind of working at, or even to go from working in entertainment to working at such a huge um, conglomerate, like, there could be a shift in culture, it could be a shift in um, how you kind of manage your day-to-day life, it could be a huge shift in everything. Were there any, like, um, transitional hardships or just things that you kind of faced when you kind of made that transition? Uh, I will actually say not really. Uh, I mean, there there was a transition, but it was almost all for the better. I am very lucky to work on a creative team in-house here, um, and I am not the only one by a long shot who came from the television or film industry. There are many copywriters on the team here who had been in outside agencies, who had worked for popular television shows even. Um, and uh, so there was already a community in place. And culturally, it's, it's honestly culturally probably the best place I've ever worked. Nice. Yeah, I, I heard that Salesforce has these interesting employee resource groups called like Ohana groups. Are you part of any of those neat ones? Uh, yeah, I'm in a few of them. Cool. Um, does, does those kind of like benefits from working in that kind of environment like help you with your work-life balance? Uh, yeah, you know, I've always had a theory actually about work-life balance. Like I don't, um, I don't make a distinction between like work and life. I think, and this is just my personal theory, but I sort of believe that your life is what you make it. And, uh, if you, if you like separate work and life, then I think you're automatically pitting them against each other. And Mm -hmm. I can't think of a more stressful way for me to look at my professional life than if I was pitting it against my personal life. So, I mean, part of the, part of that, that process of blending my professional and personal life is that I have, you know, my project of, you know, writing for myself still, you know, writing novels. And that's something that I'm lucky to have support from, from friends I work with, as well as my family members. Friends I work with also, like, know my family members and, like, we all kind of mingle socially. And um, so, I, yeah, I have a tough time kind of speaking to work-life balance because I've always tried just to make it life. And, um, yeah, I have to give myself those moments where I'm not thinking about writing books or marketing my novel or writing for Salesforce or something so that I have brain space and energy to kind of sustain myself. Um, But it feels so unhealthy to try and separate my work and my personal life because 
to me, and I can't speak for everyone, but to me it feels like you're pitting one against the other. And that's not the case. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you're putting two on different ends of the spectrum. It's like you're trying to go to one end and trying to go to the other, but if you make it a fluid experience, it kind of combines it all together. So, I, I mean, that's a brilliant concept that you kind of have there. And I think a lot of people could find a lot of benefit in, like, merging the two together and making it a one whole fluid experience. You know, um, I caught myself for a long time. I caught myself for a long time saying, oh, I can't wait until something happens. Like, oh, I can't wait until the next book launches. That'll be yeah. incredible. Uh, or I can't wait until I'm in the phase of book promotion where, um, you know, I'm like going to like XXX book fair and speaking in front of people that'll make this whole experience worth it. So I was constantly someone who was like looking forward and this relates to the work life balance conundrum I've run into because I found if I saw myself as saying like, I have to figure out my work life balance. I was always looking forward to a time when, uh, I'd be better about it. And somewhere along the line, somewhere as I got older, I started to realize that I was, by looking forward, I was missing out on a lot of experiences that were happening to me like right now. Like case in point with the book promotion stuff, if I was looking forward to a time when I was standing up in front of a room full of readers and talking about characters and decisions I'd made while I was writing, then where like was I really possibly in like was I able to enjoy uh the phase I was currently in, like the writing phase itself. And similarly with work life balance, it's like if I'm always looking for a time when I can improve work life balance, am I missing the fact that it's all happening right now, whether I like it or not. Like, what am I looking forward to? I'm going to work now. I'm going home. I have a social circle at work. I have a social circle at home. And, and I thought, if I'm always looking forward to something, am I missing the good things that are happening to me now? So why am I even separating those two? This is my one life, my one life experience. I might as well stop looking forward to things and start seeing it for what it is, my existence, my one existence not two, it's one. So that's where, yeah, that's where I kind of come from there. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I know me personally, it used to be like, when I have a million dollars, I'll be happy. When I'm speaking on a stage of X people, I'll be happy. When I have a book deal, or I'll be happy. And I, like, we kind of put all these little like contingency plans, like, oh, if I do this, then I'll be this. But then the reality of the matter is like, for like, when you actually do it, it's kind of like the same as before you did it. And it's really just more finding that internal peace within yourself where you're like, you know what? It's not when this happens, I'll be happy. It's I'm just going to be happy. I'm just going to go out there and just be happy. And then like when you kind of make that decision, like all the other things that you said, if this happens, ends up happening anyway. So it's kind of weird how that works. Um, so it's about time for another commercial break. We're about to hop off, and we'll be back for our last segment. Uh, where can everyone find you online again, Prez? Yeah, find me on Twitter, at Press Maxson. That's P-R-E-S-M-A-X-S-O-N. And to find my latest novel, Pigeon, go to Amazon.com slash author slash Press Maxson. Perfect. And you can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter, and we'll be back after this commercial break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to The Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Do you believe that being fit is difficult? Do you think it requires turning in your favorite comfort foods for boring chicken and broccoli and spending hours in a gym? 
It doesn't. Tune into Have It All with Devin Alexander. Devin and her guest experts will show you how you can have it all at any age, from relationships to money to thinking bigger than you've ever imagined. Devin will fast track your goals to yummy reality. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the last segment of this episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. You really got to understand Press, Press Maxson's journey to where he is today, how he overcame all these different things and got into a role that he really loved. One of the key things that he does in his role, which really helps with generating influence, is his skill of copywriting. He's a senior editor or a senior copywriter over at Salesforce right now. And if you know anything about uh, copywriting, that's basically writing with like sales mixed in together where it helps you influence what others are thinking with the words that you're generating, helps them be more inclined to buy your product, helps them become more inclined to spark up a conversation with you. And then copywriting is one of the most essential skills that helps the most influential people and companies in the world just go out there and communicate with others, drive sales, build relationships, and generate everything that you're looking for with your business success. So, uh, I mean, like, a lot of people might not be that well-versed in copywriting. They might not have that background with an English major. And they might just be, like, decent writers. So, I mean, you're kind of the master at copywriting. You're a senior editor at Salesforce, and you've been copywriting and writing other books uh, throughout your whole career. Um, what do you find are the core elements that you really need to include into like some type of copywriting piece when you're making something? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd call myself a master. <laughs> I really, I really appreciate your vote of confidence. Um, well, I would say, you know, the trick with writing in general, uh, well, not writing in general, I guess, but the trick with copywriting, I mean, you need to be persuasive. And the whole point of copywriting is you're trying to, to influence or you're trying to make your reader, you know, take action on something, whether that's in your, uh, on your website, click buy now or learn more or watch video or whatever your call to action is, you know, the, the copy is doing a lot of the heavy lifting on persuading them to do that. And similarly, you know, if you're a fiction writer or a novelist or, or anything, you know, the idea is to get them, you know, write something for the back of your book that gets them to want to read it. And of course, that's not where that principle stops. If you, you know, you want them to keep going at the end of each chapter, you want them to pretty much turn every page and, so when you ask about like an element of copywriting, it's, it almost extends to any form of writing. I think mm. the main element, the main key, the main key component um, about writing is that you, persuasive writing at least, is you have to be interesting. I mean, that's the number one sort of key, and that's one of, uh, with, among my writer friends, one of the, the first kind of rules. Uh, secondly, you have to be clear with your ideas, communicate them in a way that uh, the reader understands what you're trying to say and, and understands what you're trying to ask them to believe. Um, because if you're not clear, I mean, you can, be, you can be funny, you can try and be insightful, whatever, but if you're not very simple and clear, uh, no one is going to turn that page or read the next chapter or click on your buy now. And it's amazing how actually hard it is to be clear. And, um, after, and the, the thing about being interesting is that, I mean, you can be clear, but if you're not interesting, no one's really going to care. 
You know, I mean, if you say, you know, if, you, if you're running an ad to sell a car, mm-hmm. the ad just can't say, buy this red car, $1,400 used. You know, like it can. And I suppose mm-hmm. some classifieds say that. But we all know the best car ads have a different element, something that's interesting, whether it's emotional or funny or, uh, you know, some different way of looking at the driving experience. It's almost never just buy this car. You know, that would be the most clear way of doing it. Uh, But uh, that's where the interesting thing comes in. So, yeah, I'd say the two most important elements of copywriting, whether it's on a website or in an ad, in a song, in whatever, is be interesting and be clear with what your ideas are. And then after that, once you've got that taken care of, yes, you can be funny, you can be clever, um, but you you have to be interested and clear first. I have a question. Before you go there. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm crafting something up and I, I think it's interesting, but it might not actually be interesting. How would I find out whether or not it's actually interesting? <laughs> yeah, good question. I think writing is, uh, for me, and I know this differs for other authors and other writers, other copywriters, but I don't think, um, I don't think writing is a solo sport. I mean, when I, a great example is my first novel. It was called Bender at the Bon Parisian, and I thought that title actually was awesome. And now, several years later, I realize it is not. But uh, I finished that book, and I wrote it all by myself. Like I didn't have, you know, a, a ghostwriter, or I didn't have someone writing with me. I just I sat down, I had the idea, and I plowed through it. And when I was done, I was very happy with it. But uh, something inside me told me, based on my copywriting experience, you know, I never just write an ad and it goes out by itself. You know, mm-hmm. you work with graphic designers, and so the graphic designers are always reading your copy before the world does. And they're obviously a good, um, a good litmus test for that. If you're working at an agency or part of a wider team, then a, an art director and a creative director are also going to see it. And if you're lucky, like a few editors. So I found myself in my first book, I was really happy with it. I sent it off to an editor. It came back full of red pen. Um, I sent it to several friends, just people who liked the same kind of literature I like. And they came back with a bunch of ideas. And then I sent it to even a second editor. So by now, like six or seven people have read this and have all weighed in. And there were things that they thought were interesting that I would never have guessed. There were things that I thought were super interesting and all of them reminded me, maybe you're the only one who cares about it. (laughs) So I think, yeah. So I think that if you're ever questioning if something is interesting or not, I mean, you should, you should have a focus group, so to speak, a group of a support structure to ask them if it's interesting or not. And then of course, the more you do that, the more you start to, to be able to gauge, you know, what is going to be interesting or not. And even though I feel like you'll never be completely self-aware, you can, you can sharpen that skill. I think you can hone the, hone the process a little bit. So with that kind of logic of going out there and sharing what you're doing with other people so they can kind of give you feedback to see if something's actually interesting or not, I, I would assume that same process kind of works on really understanding if your message is clear or not. Like you could just send it to maybe like five different people and say, do you kind of understand what this is saying to see if it's really conveying Absolutely. a clear message, right? Absolutely. Have you seen, uh, this is my action item for, for everyone interested in copywriting and design. It's a YouTube video. and I don't know what, remember what it's called, but I'm sure if you just um, like search the design of a stop sign or something, it is a really funny skit, but I'll summarize it for you. It's uh, a group of, of people sit down with a designer and they say, okay, 
we need a sign that essentially tells traffic to stop because cars are hitting each other. Mm. So we're really thinking about putting up a sign that says stop. So the designer goes off to their drawing board, draws up a couple things, comes back to the table and says, all right, everybody, uh, you know, I'm just trying to be as clear as possible here. I think it should be a red circular sign with just the word stop on it. And it's noticeable. Red is eye-catching. It's big enough lettering. I think people will see it and stop. And the whole group at the table starts chit-chatting, and they start saying, well, uh, it says stop, but then how will people know to go? So maybe it should (laughs) say stop, then go. And then someone says, well, but we should also tell them to look both ways. So let's put an arrow on each side and say, look, look, then in the middle, stop, and then on the bottom, go. Then someone else says, well, if it's red, that looks too much like a red light. Let's make it like an off yellow, so something that's like more cautionary. And like before you know it, uh, they have this sign that is insanely complicated, you know, and and is the opposite of clear, even though everybody is trying to make it more clear. And the whole joke is they put up this monster sign that they've created that is super ugly. It's got so many words on it, you can't read it. And cars are crashing into each other left and right. And someone finally raises their hand and says, hey, designer, like, like, let's make this simple. Just have the sign say stop. And they wind up going back to the first thing (laughs) <laughs> that that designer had had designed. It's a funny little skit about how to overcomplicate something by trying to become more clear. Uh, mm. So there is that kind of there there is that that process uh, that is it's hard to nail down. I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, I've been a part of similar processes many times where you're trying to strive to get something clear. I think it just takes practice. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that kind of skit where, like, everyone has something to really chime in and say, and then it, the thing just kind of, like, goes out of control. <laughs> and then it's usually yeah. the most simple thing where it's really the most clearest. And I, I do appreciate you sharing that skit and that example. I think that really helps clarify how to really be clear in people's minds. Um, are there any other elements to really going out there and creating good copy? Well, uh, there's probably a million uh, like elements. I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, kind of overcomplicate the um, the thought. I will say that for every like five good words I write, I probably write like fifty kind of bad ones. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I. Uh, I I did, we were talking about it in the break, I did a TEDx talk recently, uh, that's how I met Ryan Folland, uh, celebrity of the internet and business guru, Ryan Folland, and uh, the topic of my talk was pursuing bad art, because Mm. I've never really made anything I was really proud of until I'd made a ton of stuff that I wasn't proud of first. You know, and if I had ever gotten discouraged with the process because I was doing something bad and I'd given up, I would have never gotten to the things I was proud of. And I think the best practical example of that is just like a funny anecdote. I was at home a few weeks ago and my wife said, made some comment like, oh, you never cook for me anymore. When, when you were dating, when we were dating, you cooked like every now and then on special occasions. And I said, well... I'm horrible at cooking. So yeah, it, like we're better off with me not cooking. And she said, well, you're bad at cooking because you never do it. And I thought, well, that's a good point. Like if I had in the early days of my writing development, if I'd quit writing early on, cause I was bad at writing, I never would have gotten good at writing or I never would have even gotten like anything I was ever proud of to, to try and convince myself I was good. So when it comes to writing the perfect line for an ad, and this is a very popular process for, you know, 
even the most seasoned copywriters. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say you might run through 100 like options for lines before you, um, before you ever dream up the one that you really love and the one that really influences someone to take action the way you want them to. It was my final thought on it is that there's this one really famous copywriter, Luke Sullivan, who pretty much wrote like the copywriter's Bible. Uh, it's called Hey Whipple Squeeze This, and it's a really great book on copywriting. But he had said, if you can dream it up in the first 15 minutes, you know, if, you, if you're thinking of like the line and you dream it up within the first 15 minutes, then it's probably not too much of anything because anyone can think about something for 15 minutes. But once you exhaust all the cliche ideas, then that's when you're going to get into like the real, um, that's when you're going to get into like the real creative stuff. And the only reason I take issue with that a little bit is you think, okay, well, the more you've done, the more you've written, then the better you are at probably dreaming up something pretty good in the first 15 minutes that other people wouldn't be able to find in the first 15 minutes. But I've never allowed myself to believe I'm that good yet. I always just think like, okay, the first 15 minutes isn't total trash, but it's the foundation on which I will probably build my most creative ideas. You know, the stuff I write in the first 15 minutes of, of trying to find the one sentence will take me to that great, that great sentence. In essence, it's like the bad art that I have to make before I make my masterpiece. Yeah, that's kind of awesome, and I can't wait till that TEDx talk comes out. It's, uh, um, do you know when the release date for that is going to be? Yeah, you know, they're almost here. TEDx has just started publishing on their YouTube.com slash TEDx slash videos. I think they just published four of the nine or ten that, that went on the day Ryan and I gave our TEDx talk. Um, I don't think Ryan and mine are published just yet. Um, the last I'd heard on it was that we were waiting on like HD versions mm -hmm. um, because the ones that, that were first presented to us, they weren't bad quality, but we all thought like, you know, we, if we waited just a few more extra days to process these with the production company, they'd be just a little better. So I would say probably not before next week, but hopefully by mid next week, they'll be up all email to you if you want. Perfect. So mid next week, look for The Pursuit of Bad Art by Press Maxson on uh, YouTube, and his TEDx talk should probably be up. Uh, you could once again find Press Maxson online at Twitter, and you could always find me at Mr. Leonard Kim. Thank you again. Uh, thank you so much for being here today, Press. We really do appreciate all the insights and all the uh, great copywriting tips that you gave to us and all these inspirational messages to help people who are looking out for how to grow their influence tree. And we'll be seeing our audience again next week. And thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Thank you for making us part of your week. Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.